Well, hello, everybody. Grab a Bible, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And uh, as you're turning there, we are, we're in week three of a series of messages that we've been calling Enemies of the Heart. And one of the, one of the things, if you were to sit down and read um, Luke's book from, you know, all 24 chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 24, you would notice a theme. A theme would really jump out on the page. And that would be that the gospel, God's good news, is a matter of the heart. And so there's a contrast between that and then the Jewish religious leaders of the day really felt like if they just obeyed God, you know, outwardly, if they just went through the motions, that they'd be okay, that that would be, that would be enough. And so what Luke's really trying to say is that God is pursuing us in our heart and he's pursuing obedience at, at the deepest levels of our heart. And so we are in a we're in this series called Enemies of the Heart because we're looking at different things that block that, the life that God wants us to have. And so this morning, I want us to, as we, as we just build, in, build on this series, I want us to look at a, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in all the Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to invite you, uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read the Word of God? We're going to read Luke 10, verses 25 through 37 this morning. So Luke writes this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you see it? Or how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Well, you've, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. So I think really the question this morning for us is how do we love our neighbor? Like how do we, how do we show the same level of concern and compassion for our neighbor that really Jesus is talking about here? I, I think if we were honest today, I think we would all admit that it's hard loving your neighbor, right? It's not easy. Like, it's easy to talk about it. It's easy to, you know, certainly to preach about it. But it's a whole nother thing altogether to actually love, you know, your neighbor. And so how can we get to that place where we really have that kind of compassion uh, for, for people in our life? And I think, I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, the key is education. What we really need to do is educate people on the importance of loving loving one another. We need to put yard signs in our yard that say love one another. And, you know, we need to put bumper stickers out there. We just need to raise awareness, educate people on how to do this. And there would, the, the result would be a chain reaction 
of love that would just ripple through society uh, if we just educated them. Now, what's fascinating about that is, you know, a few years ago, there was somebody in the federal government that got the idea that we needed to start caloric labeling on all of our food. So the thought is, is that when you go to the grocery store and you buy, you know, food that you can, you can instantly look on the label, you know, what's inside of it, you know, the, the calorie uh, per servings, you, you know, all of that. And so, so it's now by law required that that stuff be, you know, labeled. And so now you go to stadiums or you go to, you know, you go to uh, a restaurant and you're going to see the calorie labeled right there. If you go to a movie theater and you buy that big tub of popcorn on the label, it's going to say, if you eat this, you shall surely die. That's what it's going to say right there. So now here's the fascinating thing about that. Most Americans agree that, that this is a good thing, right? Like, like 75 to 85% of Americans surveyed said, this is a good thing, it needs to be done. Now, that in itself is a miracle, just getting that many Americans to agree on one thing. Uh, but that many Americans did. But what's even more interesting is that they actually did a seven-year study to see the impact of caloric labeling. Did it really impact people's eating choices? And so they, they studied it for seven years and came to the conclusion that it had uh, very little or no impact on the obesity crisis occurring, you know, in the United States. And so obviously we know that education is not the key to loving our neighbor. I think some people would say that, you know, conviction is the key. You know what I mean? Like, like if we just are convicted enough about it, then we would do it. And so uh, the thought there is, is, you know, you, you know, every January, we all do the same thing. We, out of conviction, we make certain New Year's resolutions to lose weight, exercise, get out of debt, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, whatever we're convicted about. And then what happens one to two weeks later, we're right back where we started from, right? Like we never made the resolution in the first place. So, so we're convicted about it. We know it's important, but that doesn't translate into action. And that's exactly what, what we have here in this story. It's hard to love your neighbor. It just is. And, and what we see in the story is there's a, a guy robbed, beaten, la- you know, left half dead, and two guys walk right by him and they do nothing for him. And, and added to that is the, is the, the challenge or the reality that two of the, two of the guys that walked right by were religious. So you had a priest and a Levite. And so I guarantee you, if you had asked them, you know, does the law of Moses require you to love your neighbor? They would have said 10 times out of 10, yes. But the, the thing in the story is they don't stop and help him. And so you really see how challenging it is, you know, you know, to love your neighbor. And, and what I want to just share with you today is that if you and I are going to love our neighbor, something significant has to happen inside of us. Like it's got to be heart level if, it, if we're going to love our neighbor. It's got to be something that impacts us more than education, more than just conviction, more than just awareness. It's got to be something that absolutely rocks us if we're going to love our neighbor as Jesus intends for us. Now just just think about the disciples for a minute. Can you imagine being discipled by Jesus? I mean, you talk about getting in the right D group, man. That's the one to get in. Jesus is your discipler, right? That would be amazing. So the disciples are discipled by Jesus. They're with him just about every hour of every day. 
you know, they see him do miracles. They heard the Son of God teach and preach. Um, you know, they, they spend time with him. They, he is investing in them. He's pouring himself into them. And at the end of the three years, you know, Jesus overhears a conversation that the disciples are having. And they're having an argument over who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they think they're all making the case while each one of them is the greatest, you know. Like who's going to get first chair in heaven, you know what I mean, next to Jesus. And, and so many times that's how pastoring goes right there. I mean, that's the picture of pastoring people. And so, so but, but what we know is that something changed within them. Like something happened that rocked them. Because what we, when you know the rest of the story, you know that the disciples were more concerned about sharing the good news. They were more concerned about spreading the kingdom of God than they really were even about their own life to the point where most of them were martyred for their faith. So what in the world happened to them? What was, what was it that changed them? And I would like to just share with you and submit to you today that until what happened to them happens to you, you're not going to love your neighbor, as Jesus says. You just won't. And so this morning, what I want to do is just briefly, I want to, I want to just take a few minutes today and answer three questions. I want to answer the question, where does neighbor love begin? Where does it start? And then I want to answer the question, you know, what does neighbor love look like? Just real practically. And then third, I want to talk about why we should love our neighbor. And I think we're going to end in a place that may be a little bit different for you. So, so let's just look at the first question. Where does neighbor love begin? Where does it begin? Now, if you and I are going to love our neighbor, there's some things that we need, right? Like when you're talking about what's the key ingredient, where does it begin? It really begins with the love of God, the mercy of God, and the ministry of God. And, and it begins this way. You and I are really not going to love our neighbor until we experience ourselves the love of God. You and I are not going to extend mercy until you and I have received the mercy of God. You and I are not going to minister to others until we've received ministry from God himself. It's just not going to happen. All right, so what, what happens in this story is this lawyer goes up to Jesus. Now, he's not, he's not a typical lawyer that you're kinda, you and I kind of think of when we hear that name. This is not Johnny Cochran and Gloria Allred and you know, Rudy Giuliani. This is a religious lawyer. And, and we're not talking about civil law. We're talking about religious law. This lawyer was an expert in the Old Testament. He was an expert in the Ten Commandments, in the 689 commandments that flowed from the Ten Commandments. So he was an expert in all of the fine print. And so this lawyer goes up to Jesus and he asks him a really good question. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, church, there's nothing more important than that question. That is the most important question in all of life. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have peace with God? What must I do to have eternal life? I think he's asking a really good question. I think he's sincerely asking this question. Now, what Luke tells us is he's certainly testing Jesus. I think he's sincerely testing him. Because I think, I think Jesus has been, you know, 
kind of condemned by the religious authorities because of the people that he's been spending time with. And he's spending the time with, of all people, you know, pagans and prostitutes and tax collectors. And so their judgment against him is, well, he must be a little loose when it comes to the law or else he wouldn't be hanging around these people. So this religious lawyer kind of wants to trap him a little bit. And then, and then so he goes to him and says, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds in verse 26, and, he's, and he said to him, well, what's written in the law, how do you read it? How do you, read, how do you interpret it? So let me, hear, let me hear what you have to say on that. And so the guy answers, well, he answers correctly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and your will, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then he said to him, you've, you've answered correctly. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, do you guys have any idea how big that word do is right there? I mean, the bar just got raised. And the religious lawyer is starting to feel a little uncomfortable. He's going to feel uncomfortable in just a minute. Because really what the law demanded, you guys, it demanded that we love God supremely. That means that, that we delight in nothing more than God. That, that our thoughts are always occupied in delighting in God. And when our thoughts are not occupied with God, our thoughts are naturally drifting back to the worship and the delight of God. What the law required is that you desire in your heart to please God more than yourself. That you desire to please God more than other people in your life. And that you always live in this state of loving God supremely. Now, let me just ask a question. How are y'all doing with that? Is that you? I'll be honest, that's not me. But then to make matters even more interesting, Jesus, you know, the law says something even more. It's not just loving God supremely. We now have to love one another as if we were loving ourselves. And practically what that means is, it means this, that when a friend of your, yours is happy about something and they're rejoicing about something that happened that was really good to them, you and I are required by law to rejoice with them at the same level of their happiness as if it happened to us. And then when they weep about something tragic in their life or some, you know, some hurt or some loss or some problem, you and I are supposed to weep with them at the level as if it happened to us. That we are to consider other, others better than ourselves. That we are to consider their needs before our own all the time. Now, can I ask you a question? As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? You know, the truth is this, church, that's not you and that's not me. And how would you grade yourself on how well you're loving God supremely and loving, you know, loving other people as yourself? Would you give yourself a 90% on that? Would you give yourself an 80, 70%? How are you doing with that? You know, the truth of the matter is this. We wouldn't even score 20%. 
The truth of the matter is the ship is taking on water and we're sinking. This guy is in over his head and he's starting to feel the pinch in his own life. Now, let me just say parenthetically something else to this because I think it's, it's worthy of our consideration. Have you ever considered the dilemma of the law? Have you ever thought about the dilemma the commandments present? Because the dilemma is this. What the commandments do is they tell us what we do, but they do not give us the power to do it. So, so while the, the commandment is holy and righteous and good, it doesn't give us the power to even execute it and do it. So how do you command someone to love someone else? How do you even do that? Like, um, like there are things naturally in my life that I love. Like I love, you know, uh, I love Portillo's hot dogs and I love Alabama Crimson Tide football. You don't have to command me to love those things, right? I just do those things naturally. But how do you actually command someone to love someone else? See, the dilemma is this. It commands us to do it, but it can't make it happen. The law lacks the power. And so you really begin to see, you begin to see this lawyer under a little bit of pressure. Some of the pressure some of you are under right now, okay? Because look how he responds to the pressure that Jesus is putting on his heart. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So, so here's the thing. This, this lawyer knows he's underwater. This lawyer knows he doesn't love God supremely. He doesn't love others as, you know, as, we are, as we love ourselves. He understands that. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to minimize the reach of the commandment. He's trying to put a little border around it so that it doesn't reach to the areas where he's not loving God and loving others. He's trying to rationalize to himself while he, why he's not been loving to certain people. And it's almost like he's saying, now, Jesus, you don't think that God requires us to love pagans, do you? You, you don't think that God requires us to love prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. I mean, even God doesn't love them. So why would, why would we be on the hook for that? And what he's doing is he's rationalizing his own lack of love in his life. Now, I think what he's trying to do is this. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is using the very law that this lawyer was an expert in, and he's using it against him. And what Jesus wants to show is that, is that this lawyer is the one dead on the side of the road. This lawyer is the one battered and bankrupt on the side of the road. See, you know, what's really cool about the parables of Jesus? In many of them, you and I can find ourselves in the parable. We're one of the characters in the parable. And I think what, what, what Jesus wants to communicate is this. He's, he's really trying to communicate that the lawyer is in the parable, but the lawyer is not the priest, and the lawyer is not the Levite, and the lawyer is not the good Samaritan. 
What Jesus wants them to see is that the lawyer is the guy that's bruised and battered and bankrupt on the side of the road. You would have expected the lawyer to look back at Jesus and say, the commands of God are absolutely impossible to do. What they call us to do, we can't do them. We just don't live that way. It's impossible. You know, every now and then, you know, I'll share Jesus with someone. I'll share the gospel with someone and, you know, and then, you know, ask them what they think. And, and I, I, it's more common than you realize for people to be this honest and say, they'll say to me things like, Scott, you know, it sounds good, but I could just never do it because I can't give up my life like that. I can't give up wine Wine, women, and wild partying. I just can't give it up. It's impossible. And um, I just can't give up control of my life. And do you know what I would say to that? I would say, you're closer to the kingdom of God than you realize. Because you see, we really don't come to Jesus in our moral purity. We really don't come to Jesus standing on our righteousness. We don't really come to Jesus having gotten our life in order and all the wrinkles ironed out and all the stains cleaned out and then we're worthy to come to Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we're desperate, we're thirsty, we're hungry, we're bruised and battered and we need a good Samaritan to save us. That's the gospel. The gospel is you, you come to him confessing your need. You come to him admitting that you are in need of someone to reach down and to pull you up and to save you. And that someone is Jesus. You come with all of your desperation. You come in all of your sin. You come in all of your rebellion. And you throw it at the feet of Christ and let him save you. That's, that's what Jesus is leading this guy. That's where he's leading him. I don't, I don't know if you know the name uh, Shannon Etheridge. But Shannon, uh, when she was 16 years old, was driving a car on a on a country road and and she hit um, a woman on a bicycle and killed her and um, as a 16 year old she just felt like okay this is the end of my life I mean this is it because it doesn't get harder much harder than that and uh, she just wanted to kill herself because of the life she took do you know that the the husband of the woman that she struck and killed sought her out went to her house and told her face to face, heart to heart, I forgive you. I do not hold this against you. And not only did he, he forgive her, but he actually went to the district attorney and said, there needs to be no repercussions, no repercussions against this young lady. He wanted the charges, you know, dropped in this. Do you know what Shannon Etheridge does today? She's a Christian author. You know what she writes about? She writes about how the Savior deals with shame, guilt, darkness, and despair. That's what she writes about. And I think that the point of this is this. You're never going to be a distributor of mercy until you've been a receiver of mercy. Does that make sense? You'll never give out what you've never received. So I think when you ask the question, where does neighbor love begin? It begins with the mercy and the love and the grace of God. But what does neighbor love look like? Like, what does it look like practically? 
All right, well, here's, here's how I would kind of answer that. I would answer that by, you know, kind of going through the story that Jesus tells. So he, he tells the story. He's going to illustrate what neighbor love looks like because he's been asked, well, who is my neighbor, you know? So he tells the story, and the story is about this, this guy that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I've actually been on this road. It is 17 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho, and it is um, three to 4,000 feet uh, elevation drop in that 17 miles. So there's a lot of hairpin turns. Uh, there's a lot of caves. There's a lot of nooks and crannies where you can hide out. It was so treacherous, the path was, it was called the bloody way. And uh, part of it is because it was very common for people to get mugged on the bloody way. And so when Jesus is telling the story, his audience is going, yep, yeah, we get that. We know that because it's, it's story after story after story of the same thing happening to people as they walked a, across this path. So there's a guy that's walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He gets mugged. He gets beaten. He gets his clothes ripped off of him. You know, they, they leave him for half dead on the side of the road. And then he's laying there and then this priest comes by and so the priest is walking by, sees the guy laying on the side of the road. You're thinking, oh, this is great. This is the help we need. What a great coincidence, you know. He keeps right on walking. Now, we're never really told why he keeps on walking. We're just, we can just kind of speculate. You know, the priest was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He probably had some priestly function he had to fill. And if you know, the Jewish law required that if you even touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. And that required the priest to go back to the temple to, to meet with the priest, to be declared clean, and that would be a seven-day process. So I would, I would think that the reason why the priest doesn't get involved is it would have been very inconvenient for his schedule. And then there's a Levite. And so we don't really know what's the motive for the Levite. I mean, we, you can barely just speculate there. A Levite was basically a junior varsity priest, okay? It's, a, it's a, an assistant going places. That's what a Levite is. But for whatever reason, he doesn't stop either. And he just doesn't want to get, you know, he doesn't want to get involved. So he keeps working or he keeps walking. And um, I'm sure as the lawyer's hearing this story, you know, he's going like, oh, this is going to be good. I mean, the two religious guys don't help him. So the answer's got to be a lay person. It's got to be just an ordinary person, right? So he's just, man, he's just waited with bated breath. And then all of a sudden, Jesus lays it on him and says, a Samaritan is going to help him. Now, the interesting thing about a Samaritan is Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. You want to talk about racism, man. There was racism between those two groups. They hated each other. They lived in proximity to each other. Samaritans were Jewish people that intermarried with other, with other races. And so they were half-breeds. And so, and so for that reason, Jew, the Jews hated them. In fact, the Jews would often pray for the, for the resurrection to come. And they would also include, and don't, you know, please don't resurrect the Samaritans because it would be so awful to have Samaritans in heaven with us. So I'm not making that up. That's exactly what they pray. And so Jesus tells this story about how this, the most surprising of people, the very enemy of the man who's laying on the ground, 
is the one who shows compassion and helps him. And so he bandages his wounds. He carries him to an inn. He takes care of all of his needs. He does all of that. And so Jesus asks, you know, basically in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of, you know, to the man who fell among the robbers? And so the guy, the lawyer responds, and he doesn't even say the word Samaritan. He can't say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, I think Jesus tells us this because I think he wants us to see what it, what it looks like practically to love our neighbor. And there are a number of ways to describe this. Let me give you two ways. I, I think one way to describe what neighbor love looks like is that it's required. Because Jesus says, go and do likewise. So it's very clear that that's the requirement of a Christ follower. That the very essence of what it means to be a Christian is we can't just walk by and ignore someone in need. We just can't. So the essence of the Christian faith is loving God and loving others. And so love is a sign that something has rocked you. Something has transformed you in a profound way. You've had a collision with grace. Now, it's at this point that I think, you know, as Christians, we are tempted to offer different excuses for why we're not going to help our neighbor. And Jonathan Edwards, the, you know, the great theologian, the great American pastor and evangelist, he wrote this book called The Duty of Charity. And he, he outlines many of the excuses that Christians will give for not helping someone. And one of the excuses that you'll, you will hear, I'm sure you've heard it, is, well, we only help those in dire need. You know, we're only going to help those. I mean, they are, man, they're on the bottom. And we'll help them. We're not going to help anybody else. And Edward's answer to this is it really does violate the commandment of loving someone as we love ourselves. Because think about it. What Edward says is this. We don't wait till we're in dire need to meet our own needs. Why would we wait till someone else is in dire need? thought that's a great insight. But there's another excuse, and this is probably the biggest one you see in the, in the church today. And it's this. Well, I'm not going to help them. They brought all this on themselves. They're getting what they deserve. They made this bad choice and they made that bad choice and they're just getting what they really deserved. And so there's really no requirement for me to help them because they need to really be taught a lesson. Now, what Edward says to this is, is, is this. Have you considered what Christ did for you in the misery that you brought on yourself? That while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Jesus died for us? We brought it on ourselves, but he rescued us. So I think what Jesus is really trying to say is that, is that you know, love for our neighbor is required. It is the mark of someone who's been rocked by grace. But I think he's also saying this, that, that, the, that the love that we have for others needs to be tangible. Like it needs to be practical. It's not love for your neighbor is not having sympathetic feelings and passing them by and saying, oh, I feel so bad for them. Maybe someone could help them. That's not loving your neighbor. That's just feelings. That's all that is. 
And so, and so tangible help means there's real help. There means there's a real need, and you're going to meet that real need with a real solution to that need. So let me ask you, what does neighbor love look like for you at work? What does neighbor love look like for you in your neighborhood? You know, what does neighbor love look like for the poor and the broken and the oppressed in your life? What about, what about you know, those who are in our country illegally right now? What does neighbor love look like for them? Oh, Scott, you're getting all political on us now. Yeah, I am. Because this is so much bigger than politics. What does neighbor love look like for you? You see, whatever it looks like, it's just going to be real practical. Like, it's just going to meet the need. That's what neighbor love looks like. And I think the thing is, is when you and I live in this kind of neighbor love, when we've been rocked, you know, and we let out the grace and mercy that God has poured into our lives, I think it, I think it does a couple of things. I think what it does is it heals, it heals those who've been hurt by the church in the past, and there are a lot of people like that. And then I think it, it really is an encouragement to those who are skeptical about the church in the first place. Man, it really preaches a loud and powerful sermon to both of those instances. I don't know if you know the name uh, Emperor Julian. Um, he was one of the Roman emperors. His nickname was Julian the Apostate. How about that for a nickname? You know what I mean? Uh, I, I don't think he, you know, created that. I think somebody named him that, but he's called Julian the Apostate. And you guys, he hated Christians. He hated Christianity. And, um, he wanted to be a reformer uh, in the Roman Empire. He wanted to return the Roman Empire back to the paganism uh, that it was built and founded on. And so uh, he kind of set his political agenda down that road. And he wrote a letter uh, to someone talking about why it's been so hard to turn the Roman Empire uh, on the road of paganism. And this is what he says. He says, do you know what's hindering the embrace of paganism among the empire? It's those darn Christians. Everybody understands that the Greeks take care of the Greek poor and the Romans take care of the Roman poor and the Jews take care of the Jewish poor. But those dumb Christians take care of everybody's poor. And as a result, we can't unhinge the people's hearts away from Christianity because of their charity, because of their love, because they love their neighbor. Isn't that fascinating? He wrote that. You know, a few years ago when the Ebola virus broke out in Africa, there were several teams of doctors and nurses from the states that went to Africa. Do you know that most of them were Christians? Most of them were Christians. They put their lives in danger, in harm's way, to care for people in need. That's just what Christians do. And that, my friends, is what neighbor love looks like. One last, one last question I want to answer, and it's this. Why in the world do we love our neighbor? What's the motive behind that? Well, I have, I've been dancing all around it, so let's just... Let's just jump into it. 
you know, it's interesting to me as you look at this parable, it's interesting to me that most of us, you know, if you've been in church a long time, most of us have heard this parable preached a certain way. So, and even five years ago, I would have preached it this way. And you, you probably heard sermons on, you know, well, we need to be the good Samaritan. You know, the, the whole point, the whole moral of the story is that we need to see someone in need and we need to give them practical help and we need to love them and we need to be good Samaritans. And I want to give you five practical ways you can be a good Samaritan and I'm going to dismiss you to go and Samaritize the entire world, okay? That's, that, that's how it would be preached. And I would give you, you need to do this and you need to do that. You need to serve here. You need to love there. You need to do all this, right? I mean, you've heard it preached that way. Can I just, can I just throw out a different angle to it? It's interesting that the story really begins with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the whole passage, the section begins focused on the most important question. And what if, just think about this. What if the person that we're to relate to in the parable is not really the priest? It's not really the Levite. What if the person that we're to relate to is not the good Samaritan? What if Jesus is trying to say to us, we're the ones who are battered and bankrupt, dead on the side of the road? What if you and I, because we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air? That we were objects of wrath? What if you and I were rescued by a good Samaritan, capital good, capital Samaritan, Jesus Christ? What if you and I were left battered and beaten on the side of the road and we were saved by the very one we considered our enemy? And he raised us up and he cleansed us, and he healed us, and he clothed us, and he provided us with everything that we really need, everything we need for life and godliness, this good Samaritan took care of. What if we're the one laying in the side of the road? The problem is we just don't realize that because of our self-righteousness. I think that's the way to go in the parable. Not be a good Samaritan, but give your heart to the good Samaritan. You see, you've probably heard the golden rule that says, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You guys have heard that. Um, can I give you the diamond rule? This is from the Apostle Paul. The diamond rule is not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The diamond rule is this, do unto others as Christ has done to you. Do unto others as Christ has done to you. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He's talking about the Good Samaritan there, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8.9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that exactly what happened in the parable? You see, 
It's those who've experienced the gospel in this way that develop the uncontrollable impulse and the generosity and just the ferocity of wanting to extend this kind of love and mercy to people in need. You know why? Because they realize they were the ones who needed it. I think that's what it's all about. Perhaps we've been preaching it wrong for all these years. Let me, uh, let me end by telling you this story. Um, I don't know, you, maybe you've heard the story of the end of the spear. There's a movie about it. Uh, it's a true story of these five missionaries. And this was in the 1950s. Five American missionaries, uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were part of the five. And they, they are called by God to go to South America and reach the Watani tribe for Christ. This is one of the most violent tribes in South America. They had a violent, very violent reputation, but God had clearly called these five men to go and spend their life for the conversion of this tribe. And so they, they spend so many years preparing. They're led by a guy named Nate Saint, and um, they land on a river sandbar in, in, South, in the South American jungles. And the missionaries began to make contact with the Watani tribe. And um, just through a series of events, um, the Watani tribe turned and attacked these five men. They speared them several times and took machetes and hacked them to death. All five of them were murdered on that beachhead that day. What's really interesting about the story, and there are a lot of different tentacles to the story, but this one's most relevant for us today, is Nate Saint's daughter, Rachel, um, lived with the Wadani until 1994. Rachel actually went down there after her dad's death and lived among them. And through her ministry and the ministry of others, over half the tribe converted to Christianity through her. Just an amazing story of grace being extended. But that's only half of it. Nate Saint's son, Steve, when he was 14, and then his sister, Kathy, they wanted to be baptized. They had recently given their life to Christ, and they wanted to be. Do you know who they wanted to baptize them? Members of the Waterney tribe. So they go to South America. They want to be baptized in the river next to the beach where their father was murdered by the people that had murdered them. Not only that, but Steve was asked by the tribe to live with them. And he did for two years. And so there was a writer, a reporter for the USA Today who was writing about this story. And he was putting this putting the story together, and, and the, the, the reporter said this. He said, he, said, he said, if I were in Steve's shoes, I could maybe understand forgiving them, but loving them, that is morbid, he said. He said, I just don't understand it. He asked Steve about it, and Steve Saint said this. He said, if I could go back in time and rewrite the story and change it, he said, I wouldn't change it a bit. He said, the only way it makes sense is through the gospel. It's the cross that makes sense of this. Otherwise, it's insanity. 
For someone to love people like that, to extend that kind of grace and mercy, and then to become one of them who had wronged him so deeply. You see, I think what this is really about is we we really don't love our neighbors because we have to do great things to get God to save us. I think we love our neighbors because something great has been done for us to save us. I think that's why we love our neighbor. Because we've been rocked by the grace and the mercy of God Isn't that great news today? Isn't that great news to know I've not loved God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind and strength. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. This week I haven't. Today I haven't. But praise be to God for the grace and mercy that has rocked and changed me. Now I have something to give to someone else. And so do you. Let's pray. Lord God, our prayer is that you would rock us with the same kind of love and mercy. Lord, the the same love and, and, and mercy that transformed the disciples. Lord, I ask that we would be men and women and students that just recognize that though you were rich, you became poor so that we could know the riches of your grace. And so God, I ask that you would just show yourself to us, that you would show us the sinners as we are and that you would show us, Lord, just how loved we are by you. That that paradox exists and that we are enveloped by your unconditional love. God, we fall short in so many ways. Thank you that you loved us anyway, even while we were still sinners. So God, open our eyes. Help us to see this world is not all that there is. God, help us to see where you're taking us. Help us to trust you, God, and to love people. Not because we have to, which is not love. It's because our hearts have been so filled up that we know we're not any different than anybody else. There are no spiritual haves and have-nots. It's just... One person telling another person where to find bread. So God, may we live in that love. May we live in that grace every day. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said.